So we're in 2 Kings chapter 8, and we finished up the Shunammite woman getting her land back. What I opine there is the king is talking to Gehazi. You remember Gehazi is Elisha's servant that took some goods behind his back. So Elisha said, you're going to have leprosy and fired him. So he's talking to the king, and I infer that what's going on there is the king is gathering gossip on Elisha. In other words, he's getting a hold of the former servant and saying, I want to know all about this guy. We're now down to verse 7 in 2 Kings 8. Now Elisha came to Damascus. Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, was sick. And when it was told him, the man of God has come here, the king said to Hazael, take a present with you and go to meet the man of God and inquire of the Lord through him, saying, Shall I recover from this sickness? So Hazael went to meet him and took a present with him, all kinds of goods of Damascus, forty camel loads. When he came and stood before him, he said, Your son, Bedhadad, king of Syria, has sent me to you, saying, Shall I recover from this sickness? We heard about Hazael back in 1 Kings 19. And 1 Kings 19, you remember, that's when Elijah had fled from Jezebel and was down in Mount Sinai, and we had the business with a still small voice. And the instructions that Elijah was given was to go and anoint Hazael to be king over Syria. He didn't do it. Elisha is going to be the one that carries it out. And what I said last time is I sort of get the impression that these prophets, I wouldn't say interchangeable, that's, that's probably too flip a word, but the word went to the prophet Elijah and it's going to be carried out in this chapter here by Elisha after Elijah has been gone for a considerable amount of time. So I'm sort of getting the idea that when God tells a prophet to do something or say something, it may not be that prophet personally who does it, but it's going to happen. And I don't know if Ben-Hadad is a person or Ben-Hadad is a title. Because we see several Ben-Hadads through the books of Kings and Chronicles. And it isn't clear whether we're talking about one guy or we're talking about somebody like, you know, Abimelech, which is my father is king, and it's more of a title than it is actually a name. Just don't know the answer to that. But anyway, you remember when Naaman had leprosy and was sent to Elijah to get cured. I think Ben-Hadad was the guy that sent him. Anyway, Ben-Hadad does basically the same thing that Naaman did. He sends down to the prophet of God, and he sends a... a magnificent gift with the idea that he wants to find out whether he's going to recover from this illness that he's got. And now we're down to verse 10. And Elijah said to him, Go, say to him, You shall surely recover. But the Lord has shown me that he shall surely die. So what the prophet is doing is he is telling the messenger, Go lie to your boss. Verse 11. And he fixed his gaze and stared at him until he was embarrassed. And the man of God wept. Right, so what 
has happened, Elijah is looking at Hazael, and he's sort of staring at him, and finally Hazael is kind of getting uncomfortable. And then in that process, Elijah begins to weep. Verse 12, And Hazael said, Why does my Lord weep? He answered, Because I know the evil that you will do to the people of Israel. You will set on fire their fortresses, and you will kill their young men with the sword, and dash in pieces their little ones, and rip open their pregnant women. And Hazael said, What is your servant, who is but a dog, that he should do this great thing? Elijah answered, The Lord has shown me that you are to be king over Syria. So, the instructions, if you will, were given clear back to Elijah to anoint this guy as king over Syria. He comes down asking about his boss. The man of God says, go reassure him everything's going to be okay, but understand that he's going to die. And oh, by the way, you are going to be the king. So what Elijah is doing is setting in motion a palace coup. And he's not happy about it. In other words, God told him to do it, but it isn't something that he wants to do. Verse 14. And he departed from Elijah and came to his master, who said to him, What did Elijah say to you? And he answered, He told me that you would certainly recover. But the next day he took the bedcloth and dipped it in water and spread it over his face until he died. And Hazael became king in his place. So what he has done is he has basically waterboarded the guy. He's taken a cloth, he's dipped it in water, and he's held it over the king's face until he smothers. What's happened here is Elisha has sent Hazael back with reassuring word, which puts the king off guard. And then the next day, Hazael comes in and assassinates him and becomes the king himself. And all of this is at the direction of God clear back to Elijah. And it's only now coming to fruition. The other thing to understand is one of the things that happens elsewhere in Scripture is God wants to deceive a king. So he sends a lying spirit to the king. Deceives the king so that the king goes and takes some action that results, I believe, in his death. And if that doesn't mess with your Sunday church notions about God, you're not paying attention. So we have two instances where God has instigated a lie in order to get something to happen. I'm going to skip the rest of the chapter. It just says that Ahaziah reigns in Judah and so forth. Verse 9. Then Elisha the prophet called one of the sons of the prophets and said to him, Tie up your garments and take this flask of oil in your hand and go to Ramoth Gilead. And when you arrive, look there for Jehu, the son of Jehoshaphat, the son of Nimshi, and go in and have him rise from among his fellows and lead him to an inner chamber. Then take the flask of oil and pour it on his head and say, Thus says the Lord, I anoint you king over Israel. Then open the door and flee. Do not linger. Again, what we're having is a regime change here that's initiated by Elisha. And again, the anointing of Jehu is commanded to Elijah back at Sinai. There's three things that he's told to do. 
anoint Hazael, anoint Jehu, and make Elisha your successor. The only thing he actually accomplishes is making Elisha his successor. The other two, anointing Hazael and Jehu, are left up to Elisha. And they're both here in this section of scripture. Again, you have a sitting king. And the prophet is going to go to some other guy and anoint him king. And then get out of town. There's a story in Greek mythology where somebody wants to cause trouble among the gods. And so they make a golden apple and goes in to the council of the gods, throws it in the middle and says, this is for the most beautiful one here. And three of the gals pounce on it. And from that, all sorts of wars and everything else proceed because each one of them thinks she's the most beautiful one there and she wants the golden apple. This is sort of like that. The prophet goes in and says, I'm anointing you king, and then just gets out of town and lets the chips fall where they may. I think it's really kind of humorous myself. So anyway, down to verse 4. So the young man, the servant of the prophet, went to Ramoth Gilead. And when he came, behold, the commanders of the army were in council. And he said, I have a word for you, O commander. And Yehu said, To which of us all? And he said, To you, O commander. So he arose and went into the house, and the young man poured the oil on his head, saying to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anoint you king over the people of the Lord, over Israel, and you shall strike down the house of Ahab, your master, so that I may avenge on Jezebel the blood of my servants, the prophets, and the blood of all the servants of the Lord. For the whole house of Ahab shall perish, and I will cut off from Ahab every male, bond or free, in Israel. And I will make the house of Ahab like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and like the house of Baasha, the son of Ahijah. And the dog shall eat Jezebel in the territory of Jezreel, and none shall bury her. Then he opened the door and fled. So, what you got here is in the northern kingdom, you have got staff meeting with all the army commanders. So everybody there is a troop commander. He pulls Jehu out, and he says... Thus says the Lord, you're going to be king. Now, I will tell you that you do not get to be a commander without being ambitious. So what he's done is he has given Jehu an excuse, if you will, to start a coup. Which, of course, we'll see in a minute he's going to do. Now, let's look at the bigger picture. All of this is happening in northern Israel and Syria. So he has just anointed Hazael as king over Syria. He's now going to anoint Jehu as king over Israel. When he anoints Hazael, he sees prophetically that Hazael is going to wreak havoc on Israel. All this is by way of God's judgment on the northern kingdom. Because the northern kingdom is run by the house of Omri. Rahab is the son of Omri. And that whole line of kings is wicked. So the first thing he's doing is he's anointing their enemy up there who he knows is going to cause them military problems. The next thing he does is he instigates a coup so that that whole kingly line is going to be wiped out to include Jezebel. So what God is doing is taking out the leadership of the northern kingdom, both by external invasion and by internal coup. Verse 11, 2 Kings 
When Yehu came out to the servants of his master, he, they said to him, Is all well? Why did this mad fellow come to you? And he said to them, You know the fellow and his talk. And they said, That is not true. Tell us now. He said, Thus and so he spoke to me, saying, Thus says the Lord, I anoint you king over Israel. Then in haste, every man of them took his garment and put it under him on the bare steps, and they blew the trumpet and proclaimed Yehu as king. So he's gone into a, a staff meeting, if you will, of all the commanders of the army of Israel. He's pulled one of them out, anointed him as king, comes back in, and they said, what did this guy say? Oh, nothing, nothing. And they said, tell us. So he says, fine, he anointed me king over Israel. And all of them on a dime switch sides. So the army is now behind Jehu, and they're going to go take out the house of Omri. I kind of infer that they were spring-loaded in the rebellious position. I mean, for them to switch sides on a dime like that indicates that there's probably a great deal of dissatisfaction. Jezebel is no peach. And at this point, I don't think she's the queen. She's the queen mother, probably, uh, you know, the, the mother of the king. And she's a foreigner. She is a flaming you-know-what. So the idea that there's dissatisfaction that is simply waiting for leadership, I think, is not far-fetched at all. So it, it may just take somebody to say, yeah, that guy just anointed me king. Cool. You're another new leader. Let's go. And oh, by the way, this is, in a sense, reminiscent of what happened with David. Because you remember, Saul was king. And God told the prophet and told Saul, the kingdom's going to be taken away from you because of the events of uh, the Amalekites, where he doesn't take out the Amalekites like he's told to. So Samuel then goes to Eshai and says, okay, I need to see your son. Which one? And they start with number one, and they go all the way down, and the one that they finally choose isn't even there. He's out tending sheep. But the prophet anoints him as king and then backs off. And it's now up to David to figure out how he's going to get his kingdom. And it takes several years. In this case, it's going to be a considerably shorter process. The other part of that is, in both cases, the successor is not in the line of succession. In other words, the normal way to go is it goes from the king to his son. And so what the prophet does is breaks the normal biological line of succession in both cases. And he says, you're going to be the next king to David, and you're going to be the next king to Yehu. You're nowhere in the royal family. You're nowhere in the royal court. You're just a wild card. Whereas when you get to normal biological succession, you don't see the intervention of prophet. Thus Yehu, the son of Jehoshaphat, the son of Nimshi, conspired against Joram. Now Joram, with all Israel, had been on guard at Ramoth Gilead against Hazael, king of Syria. But King Joram had returned to be healed in Jezreel of the wounds that the Syrians had given him when he fought with Hazael, king of Syria. So Jehu said, if this is your decision, then let no one slip out of the city to go and tell the news in Jezreel. Then Jehu mounted his chariot and went to Jezreel, for Joram lay there, and Hahaziah, king 
of Judah came down to visit Joram. Now the watchman was standing on the tower of Jezreel. He saw the company of Jehu, and he came and said, I see a company. And Joram said, Take a horseman and send men to meet him, and let him say, Is it peace? So the man on horseback went to meet him and said, Thus says the king, Is it peace? And Jehu said, What do you have to do with peace? Turn around and ride behind me. And the watchman reported, saying, The messenger reached him, but he is not coming back. So he sent out a second horseman who came to him and said, Thus says the king, Is it peace? And Jehu answered, What do you have to do with peace? Turn around and ride behind me. Again the watchman reported, He reached him, but he is not coming back. And driving is like the driving of Jehu, the son of Nimshi, for he drives furiously in Rome, the Roman Empire. A Roman legion was not allowed to come south of the Rubicon. So they had their legions out there in the empire maintaining order. And legions were specifically forbidden from crossing the Rubicon to come south because what happened when they crossed the Rubicon to come south, some general had decided it was time for him to be emperor. So the idea that you have a military formation, even though it's nominally yours, coming toward the capital city without being bidden is a big red flag. And as I say, in the Roman Empire, it was law. No legion south of the Rubicon which, by the way, is where we get the phrase, I have crossed the Rubicon. And what that means is, I have decided I am going to become the new emperor, and I have decisively engaged. Once I cross the Rubicon, there's no going back. I will either become the new emperor, or I will die. This is the same thing that's going on with Yehu, is he's got a military formation, and he's coming toward the capital, and the king didn't ask for him to do that. And that's why he's sending the messengers. I'm not going to go through the history stuff where we execute and all that kind of stuff. So I want to go next to 2 Kings 13:10. In the 37th year of Joash, king of Judah, Jehoash, the son of Jehoaz, began to reign over Israel and Samaria. And he reigned 16 years. He also did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat which he made Israel to sin, but he walked in them. Now the rest of the acts of Joash and what he did, and the might with which he fought against Amaziah, king of Judah, are they not written in the book of Chronicles of the kings of Israel? So Joash slept with his fathers, and Jeroboam sat in his throne. And Joash was buried in Samaria with the kings of Israel. Verse 14. Now when Elijah had fallen sick with the illness of which he was to die, Joash, the king of Israel, went down to him and wept before him, crying, My father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. I think the chariots of Israel and its horsemen represent the security, the defenses, if you will, that guard the kingdom. And when Elisha is on his deathbed, the king comes to him and basically is saying, We are about to lose our defense because you are the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. In other words, you are more valuable to us than a physical army. The fact that you have a prophet of Elisha's caliber in the nation is a tremendous strategic advantage, far more than physical horses and chariots. Verse 15, And Elisha said to him, 
take a bow and arrows. So he took a bow and arrows. Then he said to the king of Israel, draw the bow. And he drew it. And Elijah laid his hands on the king's hands. And he said, open the window eastward. And he opened it. Then Elisha said, shoot. And he shot. And he said, the Lord's arrow of victory, the arrow of victory over Syria, where you shall fight the Syrians at Apex until you have made an end of them. And he said, take the arrows. And he took them. And he said to the king of Israel, strike the ground with them. And he struck the ground three times and stopped. Then the man of God was angry with him and said, you should have struck five or six times. Then you would have struck down Syria until you had made an end of it. But now you will strike down Syria only three times. A couple of things. Apec is on the coastal plain. So it's on the western side of Israel. If you look at a map of Israel, what you have is a whole bunch of rivers coming together, and Apec represents a choke point. So what happens is Apec is the only place where you can go north and south with chariots, because all around it is marshy river bottom. And in fact, if you remember your history, Apec is where you remember the incident with Eli and Hopney and Phineas under Samuel. Eli, remember, was the priest who raised Samuel. Eli's sons, Hopney and Phinehas, were not good. Israel went to battle with the Philistines at Apec. Hopney and Phinehas went down there taking the Ark of God to ensure victory. They lost, and the Ark of God was captured by the Philistines. That happened at Apec. So this Apec is a strategic piece of ground because north of there and south of there, the chariots can roll, but they get all constricted at Apec because of the marshy ground. So what he's saying here is the first arrow he shoots, he says, you are going to win when you hit the Syrians at Apec. Now, you need to understand Israel and Syria. Israel is mostly dismounted infantry. Syria has chariots, just like the Philistines had chariots. So the Jezreel Valley, which runs east and west on the northern part of Israel, north of the Jezreel Valley is Syria. So this land, which is nominally part of Israel, is great chariot country, great tank country. So the Syrians are forever raiding and conducting war in the Jezreel Valley. If they get through the pass at Megiddo, the next place that they stop is Apec. So what this assumes then is the Assyrians have basically got control of the Jezreel Valley and are able to move through the pass at Megiddo freely and that there's going to be a decisive battle at Apec, which is the next choke point, and that Israel is going to prevail. So then the next thing he says is, okay now, Take some arrows and strike the ground. I sort of get the impression, and this is just an impression. I have no scripture to back this up. It's sort of like a half-hearted, strike the ground, okay, pop, 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 and huh, now what? And the prophet gets really chapped with him. And the way I read it is, if you had taken my instructions enthusiastically, and you had just smacked the ground, you would have destroyed the Syrians. But since 
you really didn't take me seriously and just sort of half-heartedly tapped on the ground with the arrows, you're only going to prevail three times. But I sort of get the subtext that the king is just humoring this old guy who's about to die. And the old guy who's about to die gets really chapped and says, if you'd done this enthusiastically and really whopped on the ground, you'd have destroyed the Syrians forever. Now you're going to beat them three times and that's going to be the end of it. And later on, that's what happens. He beats them three times and that's the end of it. The lesson I would draw, and I haven't been confronted with a prophet, is when God tells you to do something, do it enthusiastically. And I don't know that what I'm saying is correct. I'm sort of surmising between the lines. But I sort of think that's what's going on. The last thing that happens is, now we're down to verse 20. So Elisha died and they buried him. Now bands of Moabites used to invade the land in the spring of the year. And as a man was being buried, behold, a marauding band was seen, and the man was thrown into the grave of Elisha. And as soon as the man touched the bones of Elijah, he revived and stood on his feet. Elijah asked for a double portion. And everything that Elijah did, he did double, except raise people from the dead. They both raised one person from the dead. And here's Elijah's double portion of raising people from the dead. It's after he's dead and it's just his bones laying there, but he's st- the double portion business is still in effect. And so this poor guy gets flopped in the grave with his bones and pops out of there like a jack-in-the-box, which I'm sure surprised the burial party no end. And with that, I think I'm done.